This is an ABC podcast. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning. We all know the saying, live each day as though it were your last, or don't sweat the small stuff. But what if you were told that you didn't have long to live? Are these sayings easier said than done. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Bronwyn O'Shea, joining you from ABC Wodonga. Bron, today we're going to meet three incredible people who are living with a terminal illness and hear how they live, and live being the operative word, hear how they live their lives. Yeah, because as a society, the way that we view and approach death has really changed a lot, hasn't Mm. it, recently? We've got access, of course, to voluntary assisted dying now. And you hear people talk a lot more about having an active death plan or an advanced care plan. And, of course, we even have end-of-life doulas to support people at that time. And our language has changed too, as you say. We've gone from saying that someone is dying from an Mm. illness to saying they're now living with it. So maybe this is something that you've experienced yourself or there is a loved one that is facing a terminal diagnosis. What helps you live well. And we have in the studio, well, someone that you may know, Bron, or your family may know, because there aren't too many people from the little tiny town of Barawatha where you are or close by, but our next studio guest is. His name is Blake Pavey. He is a young man, a comedian who is living with cystic fibrosis. Blake, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, First things first, you're from a a tiny little part of Victoria, a regional part of Victoria. We thought Bron was the only one in and around that area, but tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah, well, I grew up on the on the New South Wales Victoria border, just in a little town called Corowa, which is um, yeah, not too far from Barnawatha as well. So yeah, that was a weird, like statistically highly unlikely <laughs> for this meetup to happen today. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a nice little town, and um, yeah, it was it was really good to grow up in. Yeah. So what's it like growing up in a small town? Because cystic fibrosis, you're given that diagnosis early, right? You're, you're, yeah. You're born with it it's genetic so what's it like growing up in a small town where everybody knows everybody else's business uh it, well, i think it all just depends on who you're sort of hanging around i mean all my mates have been really supportive of it and i've always been pretty open to talk about it um you know because there comes a point like primary school i wasn't i was a bit more sensitive about it just growing up and not really knowing what's going on but you know as you know as you get older i think it's just something you have to dive into no matter what so my mates have been really supportive through it all and know when they need to take a step back if I you know don't you know if, if I'm not ever up to doing anything or keeping up in sport or anything like that or social situations but yeah they've been really good um, in terms of that so in my experience I've been really really lucky. How early in a conversation with someone Blake or, or does it even come up at all like do you talk about cystic fibrosis much uh well it sort of just depends i mean uh it was it's always a really awkward conversation like when you're sort of like especially dating and stuff like i i can't even remember how it came up with me and my girlfriend but um but yeah it's always something you you have to sort of bring up eventually if you're gonna you know talk to someone over you know the course of a couple of days or weeks or months so uh yeah it has to come up with pretty much anyone just in uh you know because you know i go to a lot of meet and greets at shows and then uh you know obviously a lot of people have come with cf but you know there's a no touch 
you know, factor that we have to sort of account for. So, yeah, it's very vital that I do talk about it to as many people as I can, really. And which is a part of why you do your comedy show, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment, because what better way to be able to push that message through than not only through performance but through comedy? Just back and at any point, right, if we ask a question and you don't want to answer it, feel free to say, oh, I'd prefer not to. But... At what point with your girlfriend, for example, did you think, oh, this is kind of serious. I actually really like her. Maybe I'm, Maybe we need to talk about this yeah. or need to bring it up. Yeah, well, that was, that was the thing. I mean, we sort of, we've been together pretty much, it's our one year coming up in about a week and a half, but we, we move very quickly. I think we said the I love you within like a month. So, um, so yeah, the conversation that's happened pretty pretty quickly and uh yeah you know now that's gotten to the point where you know it will hopefully if things go well we won't break up or anything like that so yeah there's been chats of what happens with like fertility and kids and all that sort of stuff um i'm actually literally after this i'm going to find out like test results for like fertility tests and stuff like that so yeah so that should be everything is crossed for you right now by the way yeah so well that's the thing we've also talked about the prospect of you know it's not the worst thing if we get the results back and we don't have to have a kid we're just like oh we can just go on holiday and save money every year so that'll be so does the process of everything speed up for you because you're thinking well if my if i know my life is going to be shorter than other people which we, who knows, right? None yeah. of us really know. D- does the process of everything speed up for you? I guess so. I mean, that's especially in comedy, I'd like to, you know, fast track things and get stuff done as, as quickly as possible. But in terms of life, I just think, you know, like I, I am just thinking about it pretty normally because, you know, none of my mates have CF or anything like that. So, you know, my mates are, you know, a couple of years older than me getting houses and doing all that sort of stuff. So uh, I think I'm just taking it pretty normally but career-wise definitely I think yeah. Um, Not everybody will know what the reality of life is like with cystic fibrosis Mm. Blake can you give us a bit of an idea of of what that means? Yeah so it's um, it's a genetic sort of lung disorder a respiratory illness but it also as as we sort of just touched on it does affect you know reproductive stuff with kids and you know all those sorts of you know things and uh yeah so basically what happens is like a bunch of mucus gets trapped in your airways and your lungs and makes it pretty hard for you to breathe and obviously with all that mucus in there there's a higher risk of infection and uh all the all those sorts of things so it involves a lot of you know a lot of medication every day a lot of sort of you know vaporizers and um well not vapes exactly but like you know, <laughs> medical medicinal <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but uh yeah a lot of tablets i take around on average probably like 40 to 50 tablets a day as well as uh you know nebulizers and stuff like that so uh it's it's just an inconvenience but for for me in my experience i've been a lot luckier than most i haven't really had many you know extended hospital stays or any major medical you know emergencies as of yet touch wood so uh so yeah that's been my experience so far how much do you keep an eye on medical science and clinical trials and because you're a young man i mean we're getting texts now saying i'm just loving listening to your guest and saying that he has cf she has a friend who also has it and it's in her late 50s do you keep your eye on medical and scientific advances and would you throw your hand up for clinical trials for example um i've I've never really had the opportunity to i mean because as you know as i said before 
I've been able to live a pretty average life compared to a lot of other people with CF. So there, there are times that I probably take for granted that I'm able to put it to the back of my mind. And, you know, obviously that's why I'm allowed to travel for, you know, six to eight months of the year and tour around and meet all these people and do all that sort of stuff. So if the opportunity came up, I probably would if I had the time to. But, uh, yeah, not as of yet. I just, um, yeah. I love it that if you had the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, if there are clinical trials in Dubbo and Bathurst in April that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or any of these regional spots, I'll be able to probably do them there. Blake, how important has comedy been to, I guess, contributing to what I feel like is an amazing perspective and an amazing mm. um, positive approach to life? Uh, it's been, yeah, really important. I mean, for me, I guess I started, I didn't really talk about it when I was just posting videos online um, on TikTok, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20, but it really started, you know, I started talking about CF a lot more in depth when I started to go on stage. You know, you, you start open mics in Melbourne and it's just, you know, the same dudes that look exactly like me getting up on stage and just talking about, you know, raunchy stuff, sex, all that type of stuff. And it just, it gets very repetitive. So I kind of just started talking about it so I would sort of separate myself or mm. I would, you know, probably stand out amongst, you know, a lot of other people in the open mic scene. Um, but, you know, since I've started talking about it, I, I have realised, you know, being able to travel with the show I've been writing, that it has reached a lot more people than I thought it would. Um, yeah, so a lot of sick people do sort of come to the show. So, yeah, it's really, really rewarding, I guess. Blake Pavey is with you. He's a comedian. His show for this year's comedy festival is called Still Kicking. It's showing at the Comics Lounge and Blake lives with cystic fibrosis. Did it surprise you now? Like, I mean, you might have people that come to your show purely because they're also living with CF. And yep. I know you even ask questions in the audience has anyone else got CF or has anyone else been given a, a terminal diagnosis? I mean, these are confronting questions to ask at the best of times. What happens when people throw up their hand and say, yes, I do? Yeah, well, I think it's the... I never really get stumped with those ones. It's. It, I think it's usually the people who are living with it, you know, whether it be CF or I've had a lot of people with cancer or, you know, any... any you know any one of those issues it's it's usually not them who are hard to talk to it's the people around you that you've got to get on board you know it's the you know there might be three or four people with like an illness in the crowd but it's the other 400 that you've got to get on board so they can have a laugh at it I guess so uh, I, th I think the people who are most ready to laugh at it and sort mm. of you know you know take away that you know, stigma of talking about it are the people who live with it. Um, so, yeah, they're, uh, they're usually really, really good to talk to in the crowd, but, yeah. What do people say? Like, what sort of reaction do you get um, when people come and hear your show and hear how open and upfront you are about life with, with an illness? Uh, it's been good. I mean, I get a, a lot of... I do try to meet a lot of people after the show, so it's been overwhelmingly positive. You know, you get the few here and there who maybe it's not for them, but even them, you know, they're very respectful as to say, hey, probably wasn't for me, probably a bit too much. But, um, but again, the people who say, you know, it's a bit too much, uh, you, you know, they're the ones who might have a family member with it. They don't yeah. necessarily live with it themselves. But, again, as I said, the people who come to shows and have all these illnesses... They they, um, they're really, really receptive to it. And, uh, yeah. I found it fascinating that you say it's the others, right? So the people that aren't living with either a, a terminal illness or CF that find yep. it hard to laugh. 
does that slowly change? Because I just, and that's almost a reflection of society in terms of who's willing to talk to you openly, who's yeah. willing to hire you for a job, to be your partner, to yeah. be a mate, whatever it may be. Often in the face of illness, a lo- people talk about losing friends because yeah. as a society, we're really crap at embracing it and dealing with it and and facing it have you seen that like have you lost friends have you had people that haven't known how to react with you and be normal around you uh a little bit i mean it's usually it's never friends or anything like that it's it is the sort of i would oh, they're not even people that come to shows because they sort of have an understanding of what it is but it is you know when people you know i'm lucky enough to sometimes people will stop me when i'm at a pub or a bar or something like that and um, yeah, usually a lot of people do have a very um, misguided view of what it is and they, they do get a lot of stuff confused. Like the amount of people that come up to me and instead of CF, they go, instead of saying, hey, Blake, you know, heard you got cystic fibrosis. Like I was in Corowa probably three weeks ago and a guy really, really drunk came up to me and he was like, oh, mate, just wishing you all the best with you and your cerebral palsy. And I'm like, you just no understanding whatsoever. But, uh, yeah, it's people like that who probably, you know, they're the worst to talk to. But uh, on the whole, again, I think, you know, as I've been, you know, posting about it online, people are really receptive to it. So, yeah. What about the sayings, as I said right at the top, you know, those throwaway sayings that people have of live each day as though is your last and yeah. what's your bucket list? How do you feel about those lines that uh, so many people use? Do they just make you angry or...? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I know where they're coming from. I know the intention's always pretty it's always coming from a good place but you know i think it's um i think when it comes to all those sorts of things especially when people are talking to people if you if you don't have an illness and you're talking to someone who does have have an illness i guess it would be hard to not see that it it kind of feels a little bit condescending at times to just be like oh you're so inspirational you're doing so well just like um so yeah those are the conversations that kind of like ick me out a little bit but I, I do know it's coming from a good place i think yeah well we wish you all the best on the results not only of your fertility tests yes. which you're about to go and pick yes. up <laughs> go, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll come back here. at 2 p.m for the live results yeah. <laughs> <laughs> still be here. but also uh wishing you all the best for this year's comedy festival i can't believe that we're talking about Comedy Festival already. It's coming yeah. on so quickly. Okay. You can book shows to see Blake Pavey's show still kicking. It's at the Comics Lounge. Blake, thanks so much for coming. We really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. And you guys could have actually swapped stories on where, like, the best fish and chips in Barnawatha are to go and, you know, the, which is the good pub, the one at the yeah. top end of town or one down the bottom Well, end fish and chips, it's usually just the spot that won't give you food poisoning, really, I think, <laughs> is the one. Blake, thanks so much. You're on the conversation hour, Rochelle Hunt and Bronwyn O'Shea with you. I'm in Melbourne, Bronwyn O'Shea, joining you as always from ABC Wodonga. And today we're looking at how you live when you are given a terminal diagnosis. What helps you live well? ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the conversation hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt and Bronwyn O'Shea with you. Well, we're looking at how you live your life if you have a terminal diagnosis and that term has changed a lot even in our lifetime Bron once upon a time you would even say something like dying from as opposed to living with and we've done lots of different shows on how as a society 
we do slowly but surely start to talk about death more and it's a reality for all of us let's face facts some just know more than others when it comes to the end of their life and whether it be active dying plans voluntary assisted dying whatever it may be death doulas we'll speak to one a little later but just that idea of discussing it more and living your life when you have that diagnosis how easy how simple is it to do that not just for the individual but for the loved ones around them as well yeah, and we're super grateful to the people who are sharing their personal stories with us this morning as Blake just did. This text, Rish says, loving Blake, there is a 25-year-old incredibly successful professional jockey in Victoria called Harry Coffey, this text says, who also lives with cystic fibrosis. He's a super athlete, incredibly fit and competing successfully in a very tough, demanding sporting profession. He's just been such an inspiration to all who work in the industry. Recently married with a beautiful young child says des in ascot vale kelly finlayson is diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer at just 25 years of age and she joins you now and you've been listening to a lot of this conversation kelly and almost in a similar way to blake you have embraced your diagnosis to the point of not only talking about it but wanting others to hear about it to hear about your diagnosis to share their stories and to advocate for others i mean you have a a podcast with the best title ever it's called talking shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah look it's very relevant (laughs) so congratulations on the best title for a podcast ever you're also the ambassador for the jody lee foundation yes can you just tell us a little bit? I mean, 25 years of age is, is such a young age to be diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer, something that I think, yeah. and even as you said, a lot of people think is an old person's disease. Yeah. How did that unfold for you? Well, I think any cancers can probably be considered an old person's disease in um, most people's eyes, which is concerning with the rates of which we're being diagnosed at an earlier age at the moment. But um, I think... Personally, for bowel cancer, obviously, it's a conversation that I'd never heard before. We don't talk about poo openly ever. So it's not something that's talked about in a, even not even a vulnerable conversation in an open school, playground, whatever, Mm. wherever it may be, workplace. It's not a conversation that's had. So it's not something I'd ever heard about when I was diagnosed. And I probably think that was for the best because I was able to be in denial with not a lot of knowledge. Is that, that's interesting because often we, we think knowledge is power, right? You know, mm. the more you know, yep. the better it is. But but you actually think that was a good thing for you? Yeah, I was able to, I guess, hide naively behind the part where I was given a death sentence and kind of be able to be positive about it because I didn't know a lot about it. Mm. Are you naturally just a positive person, Kelly? Because everything that you have done... <laughs> so far you know the the work that you do as an ambassador you know whether it be the podcast speaking openly on top of it you know you've said publicly well there's no point lying around and feeling sorry for myself a lot of us would you know does this come naturally to you to have this kind of energy and this kind of perspective i've definitely always been a confident outgoing person and i think the diagnosis has only uh exerted that but um yes I've, i've definitely always had the nature to be more positive than negative towards things i'm always a cup half full rather than half empty person kelly your diagnosis came just a few months after you'd had your Mm. daughter sophia so when you throw in all the ups and downs of new motherhood along Mm. with Mm. a diagnosis like that what does that do to just everyday life 
for you and, and yeah. your partner? Yeah, so we had our life turned upside down with a child and in all the best ways and then three months later upside down for all the wrong ways. So it's it's a crazy um, roller coaster that we've been on, that's for sure, but it's definitely one that I wouldn't wish upon anyone else and I'm glad that I get to take the reins of it. Obviously, no, no one ever wants to have a terminal illness, but I'm glad it's no one in my circle dealing with it rather than me because I feel like I'm able to have a little bit of control in the narrative that's written. How important are your loved ones friends families colleagues and often you will see i remember you know a very close friend of mine and and she had a a diagnosis and also had something very traumatic happen to her uh, with her Mm. the the loss of her partner but yet she sort of became the support person she was the strong one (laughs) i remember just being in tears with her saying you're not supposed to be the strong one i'm not supposed to be the one crying it's like the roles reversed and, and and flipped how yeah you know what's that relationship with your friends like how does that change well the cliche saying of it takes a village definitely is profound truth now i can Mm. see that but um also as the person living with the illness we don't want to burden our loved ones anymore which is i guess why your friend was then being the strong one like we try to take the pressures off them so they don't have to go through any more pain that we've see i find that unintentionally Mm. unintentionally we put them through this journey as well Mm. like yes obviously we haven't chosen this for ourselves but we they also didn't choose to go through it so i guess as the one that's going through it we're able to try and take that stress off them as much as we can that's a big burden to carry though kelly isn't it to think not about your own physical health but kind of how you're going to then support and care for the people around you Yeah, it is. But anyone else put in my position would do the exact same thing. I think anyone with a family, anyone with a child in particular, is never going to do anything to hurt them any further. What about on your crap days? You know, on Mm. on the days where you do want to wallow you know and and yeah. you, and you do want to and rightly so feel sorry for yourself or to just yeah. to cry or to not leave the room what how do you manage those days yeah well that's right like we definitely are people that deserve to feel sorry for ourselves 100% but, yeah <laughs> which like i don't want to take that away from the people that are diagnosed and do have those days because it's not always positive and it can't always be positive but those days are often on my own and that's the way I'd prefer it. I definitely have two or three days a fortnight now because I'm in active treatment that I quite literally can't get out of bed no matter how hard I try. So those days are obviously a lot darker and not mentally dark. I'm not, I definitely haven't got depressive states or anything like that, which is obviously pretty, pretty great considering my circumstances. But it's, it's days like that, that physically I can't be there even for Sophia that are a little harder than most. Hmm. Kelly, you've kind of swung, the pendulum swung from you being in denial initially to now being so open and and kind of Mm. real about what you're going through. You know, we've been talking a little bit about this idea of if you found out that, you know, you didn't have long to live, how would that change the way you lived every day? Has it changed the way you live every day? Um, For the first 12 months, obviously no, because I was in denial. But the moment that I relapsed and we saw, I guess, Jeremy and Sophia's life without me in it was a day that we um, started, I guess, prioritising each other, prioritising people that we need in our life, putting our energy into places that deserve our energy. And I know that that's selfish in a way sometimes, but making sure there was no toxic environments that we're in and 
being able to live each day uh, happier than not and choosing, I guess, the the stresses that we don't need and the ones that we don't need to have those hard conversations with, just leaving them behind and not, not taking them with us into the future. Do you ever forget? Do you ever... <laughs> is it ever not in the back of your mind? Kelly, I'm sorry if that's a confronting yeah. question. No, no, yeah, no, it's funny. Um, honestly, yes. <laughs> not while I'm going through treatment, uh, definitely not because it's the worst part of the entire disease. But um, when I'm in my good weeks, I definitely forget until 24 hours before I'm about to go sit back in that chair. So, um, yeah, I, I think forgetting's good, to be honest. Um, if it's always in the back of your mind, then you're not really having the best day, are you? Yeah. Tell us about your living list. Mm. Yeah. What's your living list? <laughs> yeah, so obviously we've all got a bucket list and if you don't, you're lying. Um, <laughs> and I, I have always had a bucket list, but since being diagnosed, I've turned it into a living list because it's something that I won't give up on my life until it's ticked off. So it's it's a long list and look, I'm going to have to be around until I'm about 85 to tick it off, but we've got high hopes that it's going to be achieved. <laughs> There's text here talking about, you know, what to say, you know, and how, mm, how yep. to find the right words to say anything. And I think quite often people are really scared that they're going to say the wrong thing. Yep. Is saying something better and saying the wrong thing, is it better than saying nothing at all or distancing yourself? Honestly, no. Um, if you don't know what to say, there's probably a reason then shut up. behind that. And sometimes just hug the person like sometimes all we need is a hug you don't need to always have something to say if someone has just been diagnosed with something obviously that's the only experience I can talk from if someone's had this life-changing event and they need to talk don't offer them immediate an, an immediate solution like it's not helpful it's yeah it, if you don't know what to say just don't say anything be there listen as humans, we try to, well, yeah. I know I do. It's such a big fault of mine. I try and think of how, how can I fix this, right? What, could, exactly. what, what How can That's I fix this? That's our default mode, I think. We go, well, how can I help? Oh, how can, can I, I problem do? solve? <laughs> yeah. Even I'm guilty of this, and I'm obviously, like, <laughs> the one person that should probably be, be eyes opened to it more, but I, um, yeah, I'm still guilty of it. Don't worry. Wow. It's an incredible story. It really is, mm. Kelly, and, and the work that you do. And many people would know, not that we want to speak about your partner, but many people would know yep. your husband, Jeremy, is you know, is a very famous AFL footballer, and this has been yep. quite public for him as well. Just finally, yep. the has it changed the relationship with Jeremy, with your husband? You know, because that yep. those sayings of don't sweat the small stuff and, you know, the texting between who's going to pick up who and the fights that you have over who's going to make dinner or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Does it diffuse all of that crap that we carry on with? I would love to say yes, but absolutely <laughs> not. Um, it's, I, I think it's actually a, it's a question that I get brought to my attention a lot and or even a statement that our relationship should be more solid, that we rely on each other more with, the small things are less important but honestly it's probably put more of a strain on our relationship there's absolutely no intimacy there's i we can't even like i can't even cuddle him for too long because my sweat has toxins in it and he's obviously an elite athlete he needs to be able to perform wow. at the best of his abilities like our, all of our wedding photos are staged kisses like it's it, it's a lot more than people think wow, because like yeah. For example, not, not many people know about this, but we are offered a um, tablet form of chemotherapy while going through radiotherapy in the initial stages and 
like we can't even touch that with our hand we have to use gloves so that's how toxic this stuff is that we're putting into our bodies so obviously i then can't swap even like saliva or sweat or any type of bodily fluids with my then husband or my child or any anything like that so it actually puts a lot of strain on the relationship and like yes we're very good at communicating and getting through that but it's not something that many people would know about wow yeah getting that (laughs) support that you need you're now an advocate you know you want your story to be out there Is there enough support? Is there the peer-to-peer support? Did you know straight away, okay, well, I can call X, Y, and Z, and there's going to be someone there for me to talk to? Because quite often you hear that people like yourself, they're like, well, the support wasn't there, so I'm just going to go and bloody create it myself. Hmm. Yeah, I have actually never called any X, Y, or Z, so (laughs) that's that's, I'm probably the wrong person to answer. Um, I've not even seen a psychologist. Like, I'm very much um, to my own reins and seek my... um, I guess, help where I need it myself. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm the wrong person to ask that question. Yeah. Oh, you're amazing. Thank you Kelly, so much. Kelly, thank you yeah. so much. And I think you've given us so much information that we just had no idea about mm. before, about yeah. what those realities are like. So good on you for, for sharing your story and we really appreciate you being part of the chat today. Honestly, any conversation is a good conversation. Yeah, all the best, Kelly Finlayson, um, who's sharing her story there of being diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer when she was just 25 years old and just a few months after having her beautiful daughter, Sophia. This is The Conversation Now, Rochelle Hunt and Bronwyn O'Shea with you. And Bron, I mean, already today, you know, just after speaking with Kelly and Blake, everyone's experience is different, right? So there is no textbook answer or solution for this because everybody's reaction is going to be different and that is going to change over time just like we heard from Kelly you know it went from denial to em- embracing and that's just her personal story yeah there's an interesting text here from Jennifer that says that you know that saying you could get hit by a bus you know mm. she says that is the most detested throwaway line as a person living with terminal metastatic stage 4b cancer and no my positive attitude does not keep me alive science does another guru she says i was surprised to find that a support network called think pink greatly assists me you can stop supporting everyone around you you can talk openly and freely and yes laugh she says thanks for your awesome guests which reminds me of a conversation i had only last week with someone who'd been Mm. diagnosed with prostate cancer and he said his first reaction was like fall in a heap slump oh no Um, he even looked at um, voluntary assisted dying and then a friend said why don't you come to a support group with me and he went oh well I've got nothing to lose I suppose Mm. and off he went and he said he walked out of that meeting like with a skip in his step happy happy he said he went completely full circle because he was able to see other people that had been through what he was going through he could see that they were there they could talk about the realities of the treatment and what it had meant for them and it just completely changed his perspective so that peer network i think is so important and i think being able to connect and speak to someone and again that's individual like as kelly said that's kind of not her bag but what i found fascinating speaking to kel just then was when we don't know what to say do you say nothing and how do you find the words to say and maybe sometimes it is just a hug and maybe there are no words but where do you get those resources where can you get help if it's yourself that has been given the diagnosis or if it's someone that you love dr zena burgess is a psychologist and she's also the ceo of the australian psychological society zena a warm welcome to the conversation hour 
most of Thank us, d- like it's confronting, yeah, and we've heard everything from people today, even with Raphael Epstein when he was talking about cancer diagnosis this morning, people talking about going numb, not being able to hear anything, think anything, feel anything, people not knowing where to go or, or what to say. How do you talk to people? Well, I think the thing that's really important that you've hit on this morning is everybody is different and everyone has a different response. But what is common is when the diagnosis first come is given to the person, there's a sense of shock and a sense of grief and, and a sense of confusion. And you've described some of the some physical symptoms people can have. But the thing that brings people together and brings people through it is social support and connection. Now, sometimes that's through peers, sometimes it's family, as you've said, sometimes it's support groups. There are people who don't have those in the same quantity as others. And for those people, they then can use and and benefit from having professional help. Mm. But it is horses for courses. There is not one size fits all. And it's a journey. It's a really long journey for some and a short journey for others. And you need different strategies for different stages of the journey. I loved what Kelly said about... um, putting our energy into things that deserve our energy. Mm. I thought yes. that was such an interesting sort of takeaway for me in what she said. How mm. important is is that approach, Zena? You know, is that something that you'd encourage people to think about, prioritising the things yeah. that really are important? I, well, I think that happens and I, I think the way I'd put it is you maintain a sense of control. What you do is identify the areas where you can exert control in your life and make decisions about your treatment, your personal goals, your daily planning activities, the things that bring you joy that will heighten that sense of control. And for some people that really includes lots of uh, music and arts and doing things that are more creative and that's a way for them to express how they're feeling and channel how they're feeling and process it. So, you know, it is about maintaining and developing that sense of control. I wonder how much of that is easier said than done. If that's not a part of your personality pre-diagnosis, it's probably not going to be a part of your personality during and post-diagnosis. And then I guess also having that freedom to be able to live your life as best as you can when you know you have a terminal illness Mm -hmm. comes as a privilege as well. And it comes as a privilege to, to not everyone and of course what i believe as a psychologist is we can learn new things so as you said if it's not something that comes naturally to you um having some assistance through a through psychological well-being treatment is something that you can learn some of those uh, mindfulness tips those acceptance um of your circumstances not the not the the whole gamut of what's going on and not wiping it away but starting to develop new skills that help you find a way to create the meaning in the life you're living at that time. Every diagnosis has that ripple effect, of course, Sina, doesn't it, to family, friends, colleagues, anyone who loves that person. Do you see many people who are coming to you for support as a carer or as someone who wants Mm. to be able to support a loved one going through a terminal illness? Certainly um, people come to and have seen me and my colleagues um, who want to know what's the right thing to do, what's the right thing to say, the sort of things you were talking to your callers about, but also how to handle their own distress and emotion about the loved one going through this pretty awful treatment sometimes. And it's hard to watch someone having chemo, radiation, surgery, how to, how to support them while managing yourself. So 
those are things that people do go and see a psychologist about and particularly in a family situation how to talk to your children about these situations you know about someone will die eventually they are very sick they will die how you help your children adjust to that um, and that whole journey for the family is a really important one for them to do together. The caller you spoke to who's managed to be strongly linked with her partner all through this, that's fabulous. It, it doesn't always happen that way for people. Where can people get information and resources if they're listening to this and they're thinking, well, I'm not as, as positive as, yeah. as your guests or, you know, maybe it's a loved one who's thinking I'm, I'm running out of things to say or this is starting to impact me as well where can people go for information yeah. and resources and peer-to-peer -peer? absolutely and it may also be the person with the terminal illness is wanting to get their partner or their family some help um the first thing i'd say is have a look at our find a psychologist online service that helps you find people with particular skills in in healthcare and in the areas you're talking about we have a really good resource on a free community resource on our website to, to and it's called grief to do with um, health grief and issues around that and it'll walk you through the various aspects of things you need to think about and some strategies you can look at to uh, deploy as needed. Thanks so much for your time and for the work that you do. It's so important. Thank you very much. Dr Zena Burgess there is a psychologist and the CEO of the Australian Psychological Society. Diane joins us now. Diane was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumour several years ago and also works very closely with the Brain Tumour Alliance Australia. Welcome, Diane. Hi, how are you? Good. Tell us about your diagnosis and, and what happened at that time. Okay, well, I was a very fit and healthy 54-year-old woman, non-smoker, non-drinker, thought I was pretty much invincible. And one night I had a seizure out of the blue and a quick trip into emergency um, saw me diagnosed with a brain tumour and within a week or two I had a um, biopsy, so brain surgery, to take out a tissue sample and it was declared to be an oligodendroglioma and that it was inoperable and terminal. That sounds like it all happened really quickly for you, Diane. It yeah, it did. It was just, as people have described already, you just feel totally numb and you yeah. sort of say to yourself, this this can't be me. Yeah. I mean, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I've never smoked or drank or you think it just must be a mistake. It, it has to be something else. My initial thoughts on the seizure was that maybe it was a stroke, but even that seemed unlikely. So when you're told something like that, it, you know, bang, it's inoperable, it's terminal, that's it. What happens yep. <laughs> next for you then, Diane? Where do you go from there? <laughs> well, literally, when that decision, or when that um, diagnosis was made, you're in the office of your neurosurgeon and you hold it together because that's sort of what society expects you to do. But my husband and I pretty much scurried down to our car in central Melbourne and had a good cry in the car. But then you pull yourself together because you have to what are the options you can't you know crying screaming yelling getting angry doesn't change the diagnosis that you have i've never been a stick your head in the sand sort of person so you just it sounds trite to say it but you really do just get on with it hmm. Did you There's go through stages like Kelly where she sort of went, I started off and I went into denial and then I went into 
actually, well, I'm going to embrace and almost advocate not just for myself but for others in a similar situation. Have you seen yourself go through stages? Oh, absolutely. So my first stage was anger. I was just so cheesed off with the world that this had happened to me. And then I went through my research phase. (laughs) (laughs) I will find a solution because that has always been my personality. I've always been a, okay, here's a problem. How do we solve this? And it was really during that research phase that it hit me, the statistics around brain cancer that haven't changed. There is no solution. There hasn't been a solution for 25, 30 years. There still isn't a solution. And that really fueled my anger. But um, it also made me think about, well, how can I change this? And so in my own small way, I started writing letters to health ministers and people that Mm. I thought might be able to change things. That didn't help. So I thought getting involved with an organisation with the power of numbers might be more beneficial to change things and whilst it hasn't changed anything dramatically I think we're on the cusp of raising more awareness about brain cancer which inevitably if it's in the public eye it will lead to more action in government because they're reactive often to uh, what the public are saying and um, everyone I'm sure would be aware of this story of Richard Scolia and what um, mm. advocacy he's bringing or awareness I should say yeah. to the brain cancer, yes. brain cancer How good is it to have him I mean, when you heard that he was you know given Australian of the Year that they're the wins <laughs> that you take yeah <laughs> Absolutely and it's it's a horrible thing to say but it's very honest for me anyway I often felt like I wanted somebody famous in the sporting world or political world to get what I've got because it might cause some change. And isn't that a horrible burden for me to have to bear to to be wishing this on someone else in the hope that it changes things? Mm. Yeah, and it's a really terrible reflection of the way that we react as you said diane the reactive nature of of research and and advancement in science and in medicine yeah diane i know you've talked about the kind of the cycle that you go through so in the lead up to having a scan so you have regular is it three monthly scans to just to check where your tumor is at and you've called it scanxiety so like anxiety ahead of the scan what is it like being in that perpetual state of kind of watch and wait as you call it yeah well it is really difficult because um you try and get on with your life and ignore what is obviously going on in your head and that's the other point it's in your head you know that it's not like a a breast or a liver or a kidney where they can take a chunk out and you might get to live on it's in your brain so you know that there is not going to be a good outcome to this um now I'm sorry. One of one of my uh, issues, I have short-term memory loss, and I can't remember. No, what no, the take your time. Was. So, so looking at scanxiety and just oh, that, anxiety, yeah, yes. that you know, every three months, and sort of all of a sudden you go, okay, I don't have to do it now for three months, but before you know it, yeah. there's two months, and it's back again. Yeah, exactly right. And I have a little cycle, talking cycles. So that the first month after a scan, I say, right, that's it, move on now. Don't think about it for another month. And I successfully do that largely. Then the second month, I start to think, oh, it's next month, it's next month, Mm. it's next month. 
and then the month that it is, you think this is it. Will this be the scan where progression is shown, which in my case is inevitable, and then you get the stable result, and initially you sort of go, oh, thank goodness. But then, as time wore on for me, and this is one of the problems of being what they call a a long-term survivor of a terminal cancer, we suddenly realised, my husband and I, that each time we got a stable scan result, it was bringing us closer to a not stable scan result. Because Mm. that's an inevitability. So there was sort of a high and a low. What sort of impact has this had on your husband as well, Diane? just terrible i mean sorry this is the part that i find no, the most no i'm sorry i'm sorry I, that's okay mm. it has to be said because i have a whole team around me supporting me a medical team i have um support groups of people that i've come to know there's not a lot of care that goes on for the carers and he has to think about life without me yeah. whereas i have to think about life ending they're very different things Mm. and that support for him as well I remember having a really confronting conversation with my mum in her last few days and that was her fear she was like I'm worried about you and I'm like well don't worry about me I'm worried about you and you know (laughs) and and it's that exchange of but I guess that's love isn't it and and the care that we have for each other does that need to change as well that the support for carers, for, for loved ones. I mean, everyone we've spoken to today has somehow gone on to be an advocate for the, the <laughs> illness, you know, which says a yes. lot, doesn't it? Yeah. The, well, a lot of the people on the committee that I'm with at BTAA are either sufferers of the disease or partners of people who have the disease or partners of people who have died from the disease. And people become very passionate about going on uh, either when you're alive or your partner or family and friends once you die. I'm advocating for this because there's such a a lack of awareness around Mm. brain cancer. We don't have the big pink tests or the pink runs or... It's, it goes under the radar. Grey just isn't sexy, which is the brain cancer colour. You know, grey. Who yeah. wants a grey finger bun? Or <laughs> <laughs> Time for a new colour, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being so beautifully open. honest and, yep. and open with us. <laughs> and, and thank you also for throwing your energy into advocating writing letters, campaigning yes. for change, <laughs> campaigning for, you know, investment into more research for brain mm. cancer because, you know, it's because of people like you that um, people in the future will have even better outcomes. So thank you. I, I, I hope so. It has to be done by someone, so why not me? <laughs> Diane, thank you so much. Diane there, regional Victorian, diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumour several years ago. She also is the secretary of the Brain Tumour Alliance Australia. I love that. It has to be done, so why not me? What an absolute legend. What an attitude to have as well. Rose Sexton is an end-of-life doula and for decades now has also been a palliative care nurse. And Rose, you've been listening to a lot of this. And for most of us, either if we are given the diagnosis or someone close to us is given the diagnosis, we don't know what to do, how to feel, what to say. And yet in your world, this is what you're surrounded with. How do you know what to say? Ooh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, it's uh, It just comes with 
practice, I think, mm. and and becoming um, more comfortable with the whole idea myself. You know, I think uh, people are, are fairly perceptive, and and they'll they can tell if you're um, faking it. Um, and as a palliative care nurse, um, I think I, I have to bring my whole self because I am in my work ministering and, and serving the whole person because, and that's what I love about palliative care nursing as opposed to any other because we care for the entire person. Um, and that means that I bring, have to bring my whole self, which means I have to have grappled with my own sense of mortality and, and be willing to, um, to, to be there in that uncertainty. And, and, and that's the way I share that with people. And, you know, like you, just, you just be there for people. You show yeah. up and you, your willing, willingness to see the person as they are instead of always trying to rush in and help. Um, mm. Just sitting with them is really powerful. Rose, has supporting people as you do at the end of their life, has it changed the way that you approach your own life? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yes. I I, I believe that the only way to really fully live is to recognise and to remember that I'm going to die and that that could... I never know what's coming for me. My my, uh, soulmate died when he was 52 um and that just came out of the blue we just don't know none of us know what's coming for us um and i always try and remember that every day there's different things that i use to remind myself uh to try and just live my best life and it's and then it's it's that uh withdrawing a lot of investment in the future Uh, it's all very well to make plans that's great but to always bring it back to am i living my best life today am i am i doing the things that i'm loving today I guess that's it's that saying and how we started the show of don't sweat the small stuff. But, and that's easier said than done sometimes because the, oh, the small yes. stuff builds up and becomes the big stuff or they're the things that, that frustrate us. But taking that moment and that time to take a deep breath and live your best life. I, yeah. I don't know how many of us have the skill to do that all the time, but in theory, <laughs> oh my goodness, I so want to be that person more. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's this concept called remember remember to die. It's... um. Uh, I wish I could remember the name, uh, uh, Memento Mori. And it's, it's basically remember that you're going to die, remember. Um, and, and, in, and in so doing, that gives much more richness to your life because if it was going to go on forever, you wouldn't value it as much. But you, knowing that it's limited. You are one for saying, let's not hide conversations about death away let's come right out and talk you hold death cafes you have a one-woman play that you do about life and death called the last waltz you know you you're very proactive in um helping people have those tough conversations does that help us i don't know how else to put this but does that help us do dying better to put it that way uh it it will it it has to i i'm on a crusade um to reclaim death and dying in our communities because that's really the only way. And when I say reclaim, we used to know how to do all this. We were comfortable around death because, you know, like back 100 years ago, 150 years ago, it was much more prevalent and people died young and, you know, there was a lot of child mortality and all that sort of thing. Um, but we knew how to do death and dying. We knew, we understood that this is a natural part of life. Mm. Um, and that we managed that ourselves. Someone would die at home, we'd have the 
funeral ourselves, bury them in the backyard or whatever it was. Uh, but everyone understood what their roles were when someone would die or was someone was dying. Um, the whole community knew how to, how to respond. They knew what to say because they had experienced it. And so it was much more um, of our culture. And now in the last hundred years or so, that's been, medicine has said, oh, we can take care of all these things. You don't have to worry about it. And so we've lost our agency over our health and our dying. And the funeral industry has come along and said, we'll take care of the, you know, how to manage I love the crusade that everyone that we've met today is on, you know, yourself included, but Blake, who we spoke to at the beginning, and Kelly as well, and Diane, they've all taken their way and their voice and started their own crusade. We're out of time, but Rose, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Rose Sexton there, who is an end-of-life doula and been a palliative care nurse for years. I just want to give you a number. Of course, if this has, you know, if you want to speak to someone Lifeline is there and it is there for you and it is there 24 hours a day and there is always someone there to take your call and you can call them on 13 11 14. Bromino O'Shea, such an important conversation today, mate. Thank you so much. Don't forget the Conversation Hours podcast. I'll speak with you tomorrow. Take care.